On Halloween night, 1958, Jack Dobbins stopped on his way home to buy candy for any would-be trick-or-treaters who might happen by that evening. He was a stout man, standing around five foot ten, with a full round face and dark hair. His eyebrows were equally as dark and thick, flanking a bridge that narrowed down to a round nose. Around 6 p.m., he had dinner with his housemate, medical student Edward Odie. The two had lived together on and off since Dobbins relocated from Spartanburg two years earlier. At this time, they shared a pink two-story at 14 Queen Street. After dinner, the two men joined a small, all-male get-together at a Rutledge Avenue apartment. There, they listened to records and had a few drinks. Dobbins left around 10 p.m. to go 10 bar at Club 49, where he often volunteered. Moving to Charleston in 1946, Billy Camden met Dobbins when he first arrived in the city. Camden would later open a downtown bar named Camden's Tavern. In James Sears' book, Lonely Hunters, an oral history of lesbian and gay Southern life, 1948 to 1968, Camden describes his experience with Charleston's gay club scene in the 1950s. There were always gay bars in Charleston. The first one I went to was Ratskeller's on Courthouse Square. Some of the bars were mixed, like the Anchor. It was not openly gay, but a lot of bachelors would meet. Then there was the 49 Club, where the front was gay, the back was mixed with couples, and the upstairs was gambling. By featuring both heterosexual and same-sex couples, bars like Club 49 could avoid a little bit of scrutiny. That didn't stop Club 49 from advertising itself as the, quote, gayest spot in town, a message that came with a wink and a nudge, but also served as a coded invitation to someone looking for a safe place to socialize. For people who were in the military, teachers, government, and state workers, if they found out you were gay, then they would lose their jobs. So these people were very careful not to be seen in a place known as a gay bar, which is why a lot of the bars were mixed. Those are places where people went. Even if you were a civilian working for a private company, but were hanging around military or government employees, the Navy would investigate you. They'd go in and question you and your employers trying to get people fired. As the owner of a bar, Camden was subject to one of these unofficial military inquests to root out any gay men who might be members of the armed forces. They came in with a whole photo book of Marines, Navy, and Air Force men they suspected of being homosexuals. They wanted to see if I could identify any. Well, I wouldn't let them interview me at my business. I made them come to my house, making it as inconvenient as possible for them. But I was cordial, and of course I did not recognize any as homosexuals. <laughs> sure are some good-looking men, I commented to one of the investigators, but I don't know any of them. With Cold War anxiety leading to increased efforts to identify any American service members who might be homosexual, destinations such as Club 49 represented a safe space for gay men in Charleston to openly meet. Manning the bar at Club 49 on Halloween night, Dobbins struck up a conversation with a young airman by the name of John Mahone. Of slight build and 18 years old, Mahone was seated at the bar, dressed in a leather jacket and dungarees. Brown, wavy hair, five foot six, 135 pounds. Mahone had joined the Air Force in January 1958 and was stationed at the Charleston Air Force Base. That Halloween night, he and a fellow airman, Clayton Winklepeck, hitchhiked into the city around 8 p.m. After brief stops at Rendezvous Bar and Keg Bar, the two airmen arrived at Club 49. 
it was pretty crowded at the bar. Later, we got two stools at the bar and went and sat down. We had a couple beers. Then Airman Winklepeck said he was going down to the bus station. I told him I might meet him later. Well, after Winklepeck left, I ordered another beer. The bartender brought the beer over. I found out later his name was Jack Dobbins. According to Mahone's testimony, he was halfway through that beer when Dobbins brought over another, saying the drink had been sent over by a fellow patron. Mahone claimed his next drink was on the house, thanks to Dobbins himself. The two men discussed the Air Force for a while until Dobbins suggested that they go check out some finer establishments. Dobbins held a cab and he and Mahone stopped off at The Cove, another of Charleston's gay hotspots. There they enjoyed some drinks and continued getting to know one another. Dobbins then promised to take Mahone to someplace swankier. Arriving at the Elbow Cocktail Bar around 2 a.m., the two men found little luck at the East Bay Street Club. In court, bartender Larry Schaefer recalled Dobbins and Mahone's time at the Elbow Cocktail Bar. When they came in, I told Mahone he couldn't come in because he wasn't dressed properly, Schaefer told the court. Dobbins said, ah, oh, come on, overlook it this time. I didn't pay him any attention. Dobbins continued to ask for service at the Elbow Cocktail Bar. He allegedly claimed that Mahone was his nephew and he was showing him around town. But no dice. Mahone wasn't getting served. Mahone later testified. Finally, Dobbins said, come on, I have better bourbon than this at my place. We then left the Elbow Room. It was pretty late. Mahone told Dobbins he was short on money for drinks and promised he'd make it up to him. Mahone claimed that Dobbins responded by shoving a few bills into his pocket and inviting him home for a nightcap. Mahone accepted. By the end of the evening, Dobbins would be dead, his skull fractured in three places by a heavy bronze candlestick. The resulting murder trial sensationalized Charleston, forcing the truth about the city's gay community into the public eye while also demonizing anyone who might possess so-called abnormal tastes. November 1st, 1958 was a Saturday. Elizabeth Bryant was scheduled to perform her weekly cleaning of 14 Queen Street. Just after 11 a.m., Bryant turned her key in the lock and entered Dobbins' home. Stepping into the living room, she noticed the body of a man lying on the couch. She didn't immediately recognize Dobbins in the dimness. He was nude, slumped on his side, his face was masked with blood, and cradled in Dobbins' arms was the murder weapon, a bloody and bent candlestick. One of a pair and engraved with the images of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Dobbins had purchased the candlestick used in his murder the previous fall from an antiques dealer. According to a neighbor, Dobbins was keen to point out the candlesticks to guests in his home. The other candlestick in the set remained in Dobbins' bedroom, along with the rest of the clothing he had been wearing on the night he was killed. The room where Dobbins died showed no signs of a struggle, save for the blood spattered across the wall and sofa. On the coffee table sat Dobbins' underwear, a pack of cigarettes, and two highball glasses filled with bourbon. Seeing the body, Bryant reeled, calling upstairs to Dobbins' housemate, Odie. The 25-year-old medical student raced downstairs. 
Odie soon realized that his roommate was dead and called the police. Although he was initially the prime suspect in the murder, Odie was quickly exonerated. Speaking with reporters soon after discovering the body, Bryant was unsteady on her feet as she reluctantly discussed Dobbins and Odie. They're two good people, that's all I know, she said. After Dobbins' death hit the front page, Mahone sought the guidance of a priest who helped connect the 18-year-old airman with an attorney. Voluntarily surrendering to authorities, Mahone offered no immediate statement, instead deferring to his lawyer, William Earhart. Police had been on the lookout for a suspect matching his client's appearance, and Earhart was equally tight-lipped, saying only, the youth's actions were completely justifiable and in self-defense. A complete statement will be given at the proper time. Mahone remained in police custody until the time of his trial the following month. Meanwhile, Dobbins' mother and stepfather quietly retrieved his body from Charleston, returning home to Spartanburg for the funeral. Although reports of Dobbins' murder stated that he was in his 30s, Dobbins actually died just a couple weeks shy of his 30th birthday. His official cause of death was listed as triple fracture to the skull, a result of being, quote, beat to death in his apartment at 14 Queen Street, struck with large candlestick. People packed the courtroom on the opening day of Mahone's trial for the now infamous candlestick murder. Those in attendance on December 9th were looking for a scandalous court proceeding, and that's largely what they witnessed over the next three days. Allusions to Dobbins' sexuality had been peppered throughout news stories on his murder and the pending trial. An extended obituary for Dobbins appeared in the November 3, 1958 edition of the News and Courier. Penned by one of the paper's staff writers, the article began by describing Dobbins as, quote, a man of many hobbies, but apparently dedicated to none, a favorite of the neighborhood children, an admirer of fine paintings with a flair for artistic home furnishings. Dobbins' talent for interior decorating was played up in a not-so-subtle fashion. Other qualities outlined in Dobbins' obituary included his interest in fine art, frequently visiting Gibbs Art Gallery, and his avid appreciation of television and westerns. Mahone, on the other hand, was presented by the local media as a sort of all-American boy. In an interview with the young airman's mother published during his trial, Mahone was described as generous and serious-minded. Life for him hadn't been easy, Mahone's mother, Annabelle Zuverink, told a reporter, but he'd never been in trouble before. He had many friends and is respected in his hometown of Holland, where he grew up. A single mother of four, Mahone's mother had split from his father a few years earlier. After learning of her son's trial, she traveled from their home in Michigan to be at his side in the courtroom. Dressed in his Air Force uniform, Mahone leaned forward in his seat, his hands clasped tightly in his lap as witnesses were called to the stand. On the opening day of testimony, the court heard from five witnesses, none of whom spoke directly of Mahone or his possible guilt. While one medical professional described the findings of Dobbins' autopsy, another stated that traces of alcohol were found in the victim's blood. The medical examination revealed that Dobbins was struck in the head nine times, resulting in three skull fractures and severe lacerations. Blood tests showed that Dobbins was intoxicated at the time of his death. Questioned further about the results, the doctor said, 
It means he would be tight, but he could still walk and still talk all right, but his judgment would be poor. Elizabeth Bryant, Dobbins' house cleaner, took the stand to recount discovering the body. Asked by defense if she ever noticed any women visitors at Dobbins' home, Bryant said she never saw any women, but, quote, sometimes the Citadel boys would come in. Defense questioning eventually led Bryant to reveal that Dobbins had lavender sheets on his bed, while his housemate sheets were yellow with stripes. Also taking the stand on the first day of the trial was Edward Odie, who was grilled by the defense about his relationship with Dobbins. Odie said he and Dobbins were on, quote, good terms, but he had sometimes considered moving out due to Dobbins, quote, questionable habits and tendency toward abnormal behavior. Continuing to face this line of questioning, Odie told the defense that Dobbins never dated any women, nor did he have pictures of any. Explaining that he and Dobbins only discussed women on one or two occasions, Odie stated, I heard him say that he had a date. Was it with a girl? The defense lawyer asked of the deceased. Odie replied, I assume so, yes. But you don't know, the defense countered. No, sir, said Odie. Edward Odie would go on to complete medical school, later working as an assistant professor of physiology at MUSC before becoming a full-time pharmacist in St. George. In 1969, Odie died suddenly at the age of 35 following a week-long illness. The second day of the trial featured testimony from witnesses associated with the various bars and clubs that Dobbins and Mahone visited on the night of the murder. Larry Schaefer, bartender at Elbow Cocktail Lounge, recalled turning Dobbins away due to Mahone's failure to meet the club's dress code. An article published in the May 1959 issue of One Magazine, the country's first pro-gay publication, featured an account of the Candlestick murder trial. On the topic of the clothes worn by Mahone on the night he met Dobbins, the anonymous Charleston reporter wrote, quote, It was never satisfactorily explained during the trial what the airman was doing in the downtown Charleston barrooms late at night dressed in dungarees and leather jacket, the costume favored by male prostitutes on the make. Unwilling to break from his tactics from the previous day, Mahone's attorney asked Schaefer if Dobbins ever accompanied any women to the club. The answer, of course, was no. W.D. McEwen, owner of Club 49, told the court that Dobbins was a regular customer who often tended bar to help out. Quote, he was always neat and conversed with quite a few, McEwen said. October 31st, he was conversing with several men at the end of the bar. I was at the door when he left. He came out with a boy and they called a taxi. The man who got in the cab with him was in rugged attire, leather jacket, and dungarees. McEwen added, Dobbins was generous with his money and was in the habit of setting up customers. A fellow airman and friend of Mahone's was called to the stand, testifying that Mahone entered his room around noon on the day Dobbins' corpse was discovered. According to airman Benjamin Tucker, Mahone said he had hit a man the previous evening after the man attempted improper advances. Tucker then informed Mahone that the man he struck had been found dead. Testimony from two other fellow airmen raised allegations of potential perjury and admonitions from the judge that day. 
Prosecutor Theodore Stoney was allowed to cross-examine his own witnesses after claiming that airmen Clayton Winkleplack and Danielle Munoz were withholding the truth. Written statements had previously been gathered from the two men, which they argued were made under duress. Taken just days after Dobbin's death, the signed statements detailed their encounters with Mahone after he returned to the base on the night of the murder. Both men had stated that Mahone obtained money and other items from Dobbins during their night out. Munoz, Mahone's roommate at the time, said that Mahone arrived back at the base with a cigarette lighter, door key, money clip, chain, and silver fingernail file, as well as $23 in cash. One account stated that Dobbins had given the money to Mahone, while the other claimed Mahone had emptied Dobbins' pockets. During their investigation, police found Dobbins' pants in his bedroom, the pockets empty. According to Munoz's statement, Mahone claimed that he grabbed the candlestick from Dobbins' bedroom after Dobbins made, quote, improper advances. In the darkened living room, Mahone struck Dobbins with the candlestick. Dobbins allegedly fell to the couch but quickly returned to his feet and the two struggled. They traded blows, Mahone told his roommate, with Mahone downing Dobbins with a single punch to the gut. Munoz stated that Mahone claimed to have rifled through Dobbins' pants pockets and later boasted about the fight. This came after Mahone is said to have bragged to his fellow airmen about the swanky bars that he visited with Dobbins. They were the types of places, Mahone said, that you, quote, see in the movies. During the third and final day of witness testimony, Mahone was allowed to share his own account of the night he beat Jack Dobbins to death. After visiting a series of bars on Halloween night, Mahone accompanied Dobbins home for one last drink. Entering Dobbins home, Mahone removed his jacket while Dobbins prepared some drinks in the kitchen. Both men took a seat on the couch and Mahone took a sip. As soon as Dobbins sat down, he put his hand on my shoulder and another on my lap. I was scared. I told him I had to use the latrine. Mahone claimed to have spent five minutes in Dobbins' bathroom trying to think of a way to escape. Returning to the living room, Mahone said he found Dobbins standing completely nude. I didn't wait around. I ran back upstairs thinking he was behind me. I grabbed the candlestick. I then went to the door, looked down the stairs, and didn't see him. I went downstairs and started to cross the room. I had told him I wanted no part of that. He grabbed me. I hit him three or four times and ran out the door. I only thought I had knocked him out. I don't think I could go through life with that on my conscience. I didn't mean to kill Mr. Dobbins. On the evening of December 11th, the fate of John Mahone was put in the hands of the jury. A deep frost had descended upon Charleston and much of South Carolina. News of a verdict would reach the public on the coldest day since 1899, as snow blanketed the state. After three days of testimony, the jury retired at 7.55 p.m. The courtroom had remained crowded throughout the closing arguments. At several moments during the trial, those in attendance laughed and clapped before being called to order by the judge. The prosecuting attorney argued that evidence showed that Mahone had, quote, set up events which led to the slaying of Dobbins in the living room on 14 Queen Street. According to news reports, the prosecution alleged that robbery was the prime motive in Dobbins' killing, asserting that thieves often preyed upon, quote, persons of abnormal behavior to get money. 
Mahone's. Meanwhile, the defense cited a South Carolina law which gave Mahone the right to defend himself against improper advances by Dobbins. Give back this mother her wonderful son, concluded the defense. Give back the Air Force its excellent soldier. Give back this young man his future and his self-respect. The jury returned to the courtroom twice to review witness testimony before delivering a final verdict. Around 10 p.m., jurors requested coffee, and around 12.25 a.m., after almost five hours of deliberation, the judge summoned the jurors, demanding they arrive at a verdict, quote, within a reasonable amount of time. We've had this trial, Judge Pruitt told the jury, and you are here to get a verdict, the truth in this case. If the state is entitled to a verdict in this case, it is entitled to it tonight. If the defendant is entitled to a verdict, he is entitled to it tonight. Thirty minutes later, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty. The ruling was met with applause from Mahone supporters in the gallery. The young airman had narrowly avoided execution. Dobbins' killing was declared justified. Mahone fell into his mother's arms, an innocent man. His superior at the Air Force Base announced that Mahone would be allowed to return home to Michigan for the Christmas holidays. He and his family prepared to leave Charleston immediately. This concludes part two of a three-part series for the Charleston City Paper titled A Slow Burn, How the Candlestick Murder of 1958 struck fear in Charleston's gay community. This episode was written, edited, and scored by myself, Dustin Waters, with script supervision by Sam Spence. The part of Billy Camden was read by Greg Garrett. The part of John Mahone was read by Paul Bowers. Please pick up a copy of the City Paper's Pride issue, available September 11th, and visit www.charlestoncitypaper.com for more. Continue following this series in the Part 3 conclusion, which examines the fallout from the Candlestick murder trial and how Cold War paranoia stoked homophobia in Charleston and beyond. Thanks for listening.